I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you gotta decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. This week's episode is a bit of a special. It finds me out and about in Berlin. I went to Berlin because the Berlin Film Festival was on and members of my family wanted to go there, but I wasn't really at the film festival. I was more spending time in Berlin, visiting some of the settings of some of my favourite movies, going to museums and learning more about German cinema, and at one point visiting the apartment of one of my favourite musicians of all time. So, it's a slightly musy podcast, not unlike like the one I did when we went up to the Straw Dog's house, sit back and enjoy the sounds of a man wandering around Berlin and being frankly baffled by how much stuff there is going on. So I'm here in Berlin. Um, I've come here because the Berlin Film Festival is on. I'm not actually working the Berlin Film Festival. I'm just going to sort of dip in and out of it. Um, my partner, Linda Reese Williams, has brought a whole bunch of uh, students to the Berlin Alley. And uh, so I'm just kind of helping out. and I'll dip in and out of a, of a few screenings. So I've just arrived, we've checked into our uh, hostel, which is uh, just hard by the Bahnhof Zoo. So immediately, this has become a kind of cinematic location for me. I remember really clearly in the early 80s going to see the film of Christiana F, which is based on this kind of uh, memoir. It was a series of recorded interviews that appeared first uh, in magazines and then uh, were turned into a book. Christiana F., the diary of a young girl in Berlin uh, who becomes addicted to heroin and her sort of descent into uh, drug addiction. And the film was released under the title uh, We Children of the Bahnhof Zoo. The film, which is directed by uh, Ulrich Edel, later known as Uli Edel, who became uh, better known for directing things like Madonna's uh, Body of Evidence film. And most of it is shot here around the uh, around the zoological garden station and although the the geography and the the sort of the look of the area has changed the station itself is pretty similar apparently after the film and the book came out there was a kind of weird culty thing that people became attracted by the idea of going to uh, Bahnhof Zoo uh, because you know because of the notoriety of Christiana F the movie featured David Bowie um, there's a there's a kind of interesting account of, of uh, the original girl involved the original Christiana F going to the premiere with David Bowie but the, the, the book and then the film became a kind of cult thing and apparently there was a weird subculture which then developed of people who were somehow drawn to the area around Bahnhof Zoo because of its notoriety. When I saw it, I remember thinking that it was the you know, most extraordinary don't-do-drugs 
advert I, I, I could think of. I mean, it's you know, it is a story of somebody descending into the most appalling and wretched drug addiction, but it all takes place around this area and there's a sequence in it i think it's after the first time she takes heroin when her and her friends run through the corridors of the the barnhof zoo and you know past the shops and it plays out to the sound of uh, david bowie's heroes and it's a really ecstatic sequence i think we played it once at uh, mk3d and it's strange being here and seeing that because when you walk into that station it still does look you know to, to my mind anyway like what it looked like in a movie i mean the rest of the geography of the place has changed very much so anyway there's a weird thing i arrive here and i'm hard by the sight of you know one of the kind of berlin movie landmarks at least for somebody of my age for whom you know going to see christiana f in the cinema was was quite a big deal obviously i was a big bowie fan and bowie was living here when that film was made he was here, you know, recording at Hansa Studios. And so, you know, that's all part and parcel. Very tied up with it. Anyway, what I'm going to do is, this evening, I'm going to go to see a film. There's a film called Goddess of the Fireflies, which I don't know much about, but it's on. It's a public screening. So I'm going to go and check that out. And anyway, here I am in Berlin and already in a movie. So, in a strange coincidence, I'm out of my first screening now. I, I went to see uh, Goddess of the Fireflies. Um, it's a public screening, completely sold out, a uh, great big theatre. Um, the cast and crew and the director and the writer are all there. And it's a kind of coming-of-age tale about a young girl who very, very early on in the beginning of the film gets given... I'm not making this up, this is completely coincidental... gets given a copy of Christiana F., and um, <laughs> when the book was produced on screen, you know, she's this kind of young girl, she's celebrating her birthday, she's got, like, you know, cakes and sweets, and then she gets given a, a disc man, because it's set in the 1990s, and she gets given a copy of Christiana F., and when she got given the copy, there was a sort of huge ripple of laughter around the auditorium, because obviously invoking Christiana F. in Berlin is just one of those things. I thought it was a kind of, uh, you know, it's everyone recognising the cliché, then, of course, weirdly enough, I thought what was going to happen was that this was being brought out as a kind of, OK, this isn't the way this story is going to go. Of course, that is exactly the way that story then went. She did then fall in with a bunch of people who were taking drugs and, uh, you know, so it's then her coming-of-age story and her dealing with drugs. And it was, a, it was such a strange experience because I thought some things about the film were good, some things less so. Um, had a couple of great performances i think it will have some problems with uh, the bbfc if it's to be released uh, in the uk but how strange that having just recorded that thing about look you know here i'm in berlin i'm just by the barnhof zoo and this is you know the site of christiana f that i saw when i was a teenager and blah 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 and then i go and see this film and so early on they literally pull out a copy of the book and uh, and then the film very much follows that kind of cycle anyway it was it was interesting, not least because it was a public screening and it was absolutely rammed. And um, one of the things about the Berlin Film Festival is I think it has probably the highest public access of any 
festival, um, certainly of any festival I've been to, I mean, Cannes is particularly non-public friendly. But this was, you know, it was great. It was all, um, you know, public access. And then everyone was there. The director was there. The, the author was there. The stars were there. The cinematographer was there. Somebody's son was there. I think it was the sound man's son or something. So, um, and it seemed to go down very well with the audience. But for me, <laughs> strange experience. So here's an odd one. Um, I've taken the train from Potsdamer Platz, got off and walked up to 155 Hauptstrasse, which is, as many of you will know, the apartment where Bowie lived between 76 and 78. There's, a, there's a, an official plaque on the wall which says, hang on, it says, uh, what's in German? Im Diesen Haus, uh, Wohnheit von 1976, is, is uh, 1978 uh, David Bowie and then it talks about uh, the recording of the, the Berlin Trilogy um, two strange things about this one that at floor level it looks like a very very ordinary apartment although actually when you look up to the to the higher floors it, it looks grander like a, like a grander old building I imagine that the apartments inside are actually much nicer than, than the floor level gives away second thing is it's in a slightly indistinct neighbourhood I mean, it, you know, it is. It looks like the choice of somebody who is looking to be out of the way, looking to be um, a little bit off the beaten track. Um, and then, you know, one of these sort of lovely little ironies: the door, which is the door into 155 Hauptstrasse, um, has got a sign that now it's a, it's a dental practice. There is an obvious irony in David Bowie living somewhere that is now a dentist because one of the most famous thing about, things about David Bowie was his fantastically irregular teeth, which I think he may have got sorted out later, but always one of the really iconic things about Bowie was his smile and that brilliantly sort of... You know, people always talk about his eyes and, you know, how the difference in the eyes was the thing that made him look, you know, alien and strange, but his teeth were just... It was just something fantastically attractive about the strangeness of Bowie's teeth. Made you proud to be British. Made you proud to be British looking at a, you know, a really famous international icon with those teeth. Anyway, I mean, I love those uh, albums. I particularly love Heroes, which I've talked about a lot in relation to, obviously, Christiana F. And uh, hearing it for the first time and, you know, growing up as a Bowie fan... So it's, uh, it's really interesting to be outside this door. Also, what's remarkable is that although there are flowers placed in the ironworks outside the door, there's not, a, there's not crowds or anything. It's, uh, it's not like Checkpoint Charlie. You could, you, you could walk past this without noticing. Anyway, there we are. I might see if I can pop by Hansa Studios, which is down by Potsdamer Platz, but this is, I th this is the thing I wanted to do, to come and see the apartment. <laughs>
just a quick PS on that um, the Bowie apartment thing. Obviously, that uh, trilogy of albums that begins with Low. I know that I've talked about this before, but Nick Rogue said that when he was making Manifel to Earth. Bowie had originally intended to do the soundtrack and various reasons it didn't happen. Nick Rogue said it was to do with time and money and the film company not really facilitating it, so it ended up not not happening. But Bowie had started working on some ideas. Nick Rogue said that sometime later, Bowie sent him a vinyl copy of Low and said, the second side of this is what I had intended as the soundtrack to The Man Who Fell to Earth. I mean, there is one particular track, I think Subterraneans, that people have said, well, that specifically did seem to come from a riff that Bowie had written for the soundtrack of Low. And there's, there's a lot of discussion about how much of the rest of the soundtrack of Low you know, actually was um, coming out of his experiments for the soundtrack. But Nick Rogue told me that Bowie sent him a copy of the album with a note that said, the second side of this album is the music I would have done for The Man Who Fell to Earth. So again, it's another lovely Berlin movie connection. So I'm here at the Sony Center now. This is kind of uh, one of the hubs of where the, the film festival is based. And I'm going to go into the uh, German Film and Television Museum. I've been told that it's a really brilliant museum, that they've got loads and loads of uh, early cinema stuff. Um, stuff that, you know, about the first, the invention of the moving image and, and then, you know, Fritz Lang and uh, there's a whole cabinet of Dr. Caligari exhibition, loads of my Leonard Dietrich stuff as well. So, um, so yeah, I'm going to go in now to the uh, German Film and Television Museum. I'll report when I come out. Vor der Kaserne, vor dem großen Tor, steht eine Laterne und steht sie noch davor. Dort wollen wir uns wiedersehen. Bei der Laterne wollen wir stehen wie einst Lili Marlene, wie einst Lili Marlene. So that's me out of the German Film and Television Museum. That was astonishing. I mean, that was a really uh, amazing. If you're here in Berlin, you get a chance, do go to the uh, the Film and Television Museum. It's here in the Sony Center. And uh, it's it's astonishing, not least because, firstly, they've got some really, really early cinema stuff about, you know, first ever projected moving images. They've got a, just a wealth of uh, Milena Dietrich stuff. Apparently, they've got like thousands of her costumes. In Exeter, at the Bill Douglas Center, they have one set of uh, Milena Dietrich's shoes. Appar I think I'm right in saying that Somebody won them in a, there was a prize, you know, you could write in and win a pair of Marlena Dietrich shoes and then uh, they kept them and then later on this was discovered in an attic and then handed on to the Bill Douglas Museum and that's a really big thing. But here at the German Museum of Film and Television, they've got loads of stuff. Some of it's in storage, some of it's on display. I mean, incredible uh, costumes uh, pointing out, you know, just how much, you know, she had incredibly long legs and a sort of fairly short torso. And when you see these costumes, it's a built, you know, designed to accentuate that. 
they are remarkable fantastic photographs um, there's an awful lot of stuff of course about uh, the, uh, the UFA and um, the the exhibition takes in things like uh, like Lenny Riefenstahl and you know what happened to German filmmakers either staying and making propaganda films or um, you know or leaving and going to America an awful lot about the the interaction between German cinema and American cinema how German filmmakers would go to America bring American technology back and then you know radically transform the the face of, of cinema with the, the movies that they were making using technology that had come in uh, from the West um, there are some really disturbing things there's a there's a thing about the creation of this propaganda film about Theresienstadt if you saw the last of the unjust a few years ago the Claude Landsman film it's about this the model ghetto and they've got some stuff about the creation of this propaganda film that was designed to make this you know hideous uh, place appear to the outside to the Red Cross like somehow it was it was humane and you know like a park with uh, you know umbrellas and seating areas and uh, we were chillingly told that the people who'd been involved in making the propaganda film were subsequently sent to Auschwitz so that there was no trail of the the, the appalling you know fraudulence of the of the endeavor that the propaganda film was about there's also it, 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 as part of the um, museum there's a whole exhibition about cabinet of dr caligari including weirdly enough this kind of virtual reality experience when you walk into this box and you you put on a headset and you're sort of inside those expressionist sets there's loads and loads of models of what the studio with the sets look like so you can look through from the director's point of view see past the actors into those extraordinary you know angular weird expressionist sets um there's an awful lot of stuff about how you I mean you realize how much not just the style of cinema because obviously you know the german emigrants then went to hollywood and, and you know gave us film noir gave us all those things that we then think of as you know classic 40s and 50s cinema but also how much technological uh, achievements were were based on work done uh, here in in berlin and in germany it's a great uh, it's a really great time it took a couple of hours to go around and to be honest with you i could have stayed in there longer than that if you get a chance if you're here in berlin do check out the Museum of Film and Television. It's quite remarkable. Um, I'm now going to go and see if I can find something that uh, Thomas, who was the guy who was showing us round, uh, he, he, he said, uh, any of you interested in Vim? Oh, yes, yeah, sorry, one last thing, which I, I nearly forgot. Um, in the very last room, most of the, the exhibition is about you know, early German cinema and Weimar Republic and uh, you know, stuff during the Second World War. The last room is a kind of quite brief roundup of... You know, Rainer Werner Fassbender and uh, and Werner Herzog and Volker Schlondorf and you know modern uh, German filmmakers. Oh, and there's some stuff you know Roland Emmerich. But brilliantly, and I hadn't expected this at all, they had two things in the last room. One of them was they have the costume, the kind of weird animal costume from Tony Erdmann, which I I love that film. I think it's great, and the costume is actually there. That kind of weird thing that the father wears whilst attempting in this kind of completely clumsy way to reconnect with his daughter if you've ever seen tony erdman it's one of the sort of the most painful and piercing uh comedies i mean it is a comedy technically although a lot of it is very very not funny but it's just just genius and it's so awkward and you know loving and it has this weird sort of surreal thing about um this guy putting on this kind of furry bear costume 
uh, in order to make contact, which he can't do in person otherwise, and the costume is there, so that's great. And then just before that is the model of the ship from Fritz Corral, and obviously I'm a huge Werner Herzog fan, and you know famously that when Herzog made Fitzgeraldo, he had a real ship and he dragged it over a real hill, mountain, whatever. And, uh, you know, he sort of recreated the, the craziness of the narrative of the film. Well, in the sequence in which the, the, the ship goes down the rapids and you see it sort of crashing through those sort of running waters, um, it's a model. And the model is there, and I hadn't expected it to be there. And it's there, it's about um, maybe five foot long, maybe five or six foot long, so a big model. And obviously incredibly detailed because it's the model that you see in those sequences. And there it was, perfectly preserved, right in front of me. So I was standing about, you know, a, a foot away from the model of the ship in Fritz Corraldo. And, uh, and I, it made me think of that thing. You know, I've talked about this a lot when I interviewed Werner Herzog and, and he got shot with an air rifle whilst we were in the middle of the interview and he didn't flinch. He famously, you know, just kind of wanted to carry on the interview and he said, it is not a significant bullet. He said, I've been shot in the jungles of Peru. That is significant. And, um, and then years later, I, I said to him, I'd done an interview with him and I said, you know that thing when, you know, when you, you never got that pellet taken out, you were shot with an air rifle, you never got it taken out. Did it all heal up? And he said, yes, yes, it healed up. And I said, does it... Does it ever give you any trouble, any pain? He said, no, most of the time it's fine, except when I laugh exceptionally loud and then I get a searing pain in my abdomen. And I thought, it's funny, isn't it? When Werner Herzog has a really good laugh, he suddenly has a searing pain. That will forever be me. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Okay, so this is uh, peculiar. I'm standing by the Sony Centre, which is where most of the Berlin Film Festival stuff is happening, the kind of central stuff is happening. I've just been around the, the Film Museum, which was really extraordinary. But one of the things about the Sony Centre was that it was built to incorporate the remains of the Grand Hotel uh, Esplanade. So when we were doing the tour of the museum, one of the things that the museum director told us was that the Hotel Esplanade, the remains of it, are now part of the, the Sony Centre. And 
you, as, when you walk out, you can see there are kind of uh, fragments of buildings that are now preserved behind glass because the hotel was destroyed during the Second World War. But its movie heritage, its movie history is really remarkable. So I'm just now standing exactly outside it. This is what's written on the, the sign outside the bit behind glass. It says, um, the former Grand Hotel Esplanade was one of the most famous hotels of the era of Kaiser Wilhelm. Uh, the Golden Twenties international screen stars like Charlie Chaplin and Greta Garbo met here at Berlin's busiest intersection. And then afterwards, in the post-war years, after World War II, uh, the building Salbo Esplanade, as it was then called, experienced a new resurgence as a venue for events. It was in the remaining rooms of the ruins of the building that stood amongst the debris of the destroyed south side of Berlin's Tiergarten district. The first balls, carnival parties, film festival gatherings and fashion shows took place. And of course, if you've seen Wings of Desire, that's where um, Nick Cave plays during that sequence when they go and, and watch Nick Cave perform. That's in the Hotel Esplanade, which is now part of the Sony Centre. So there's this really sort of strange continuous history that you go into the museum and you, you've got this extraordinary history of German cinema from the very, very earliest invention of the moving image right up to uh, the remains of this hotel built into the Sony Centre where that part of Winter Desire took place. And the murder of crows did circle round first one and the others flapping blackly down. And the Carney's van still sat upon the edge, tilting slowly as the firm ground turned to sludge. Here's a nice little detail amongst the uh, posters at the Sony Centre. They've got a whole bunch of, you know, stuff from Metropolis in the in the museum. They've got a, a replica of the of the robot from Metropolis, and they've got posters of classic, you know, Fritz Lang and uh, stuff from M, and uh, as I said, Caligari and all that stuff. And then huddled amidst all of that, there's a poster for Bait. Look at that, Cornwall's finest here in the middle of Berlin, because of course Bait played, premiered here at the Berlin Film Festival uh, last year, this time last year. Mark Jenkins told me this, this great story that he arrived at the cinema, which was packed. Like I said, the public screening that we went to of this film uh, yesterday, um, was it yesterday or the day before, uh, was absolutely packed. And uh, he thought it must be for another film. He said to somebody, what else are they showing? They said, no, no, it's just your film. And so he sat there and the film started playing. And he said about 10 minutes in, somebody got up and walked out. And he thought, oh, that's it. That's it. It's, I'm done for. I've lost it. And he, he said he was kind of heartbroken. And then about uh, five minutes later, they came back. They'd just gone for a wee. And he was just like, it's so elated that they'd come back. Hooray! And then, of course, the film, you know, was just a huge success. I think it was Peter Bradshaw's was the first review of it in The Guardian. And I think that was the the point in which people realised that they were onto something special. But now there's a poster for bait here in the middle of Berlin.
So this is at the Jewish Memorial up by the Brandenburg Gate. What's extraordinary about it is that when you first approach it, it just looks like a series of like low-lying blocks. It's the area of about a city block, and when you first come to it, it looks like a series of low-lying grey blocks that look like they have a kind of like a mausoleum, like a, a tomb-like shape. But as you walk into it, the pathway that you're on goes down and down and down, and the blocks go from being small, low-lying blocks to huge, great, almost skyscraper-like size, and you start to become more and more enclosed in and trapped in the structure. So <laughs> it's very moving. It seems to me to be about the way you can look at something from the surface and not see it happening and then as you get into it, as you walk into it, it just becomes deeper and deeper and more and more all-encompassing and it's really quite profound. There's also a sort of maze-like sense that you could get lost in this, that you can lose your sense of self in it these absolutely rigid, upright concrete blocks. I'm in the middle of it now, and whichever way you look, it's just narrow alleyways. Um, so I said, quite claustrophobic and just remarkable because from the outside, it just looked like a kind of flat surface with small, low-lying blocks. When you're in the middle of it, it's, it's overpowering and kind of quite overwhelming. now standing outside the, um, the Holocaust Memorial and again from the outside it now just looks like a kind of flat low-lying sea of, um, of rectangular blocks. It's quite an extraordinary experience because from the outside it just looks like very little, like I said just like a, a, a square city block low-lying monument and then you walk into it and you walk into it and almost without noticing suddenly you're surrounded by it. Very powerful. So I'm now standing with my back to the Brandenburg Gate, looking down the long boulevard toward the Victory Column, which of course is the central uh, icon from uh, Wings of Desire. And I mean, it is fairly breathtaking. It's weird to think there is all this history in front of and behind me. And the thing that I'm thinking about is a Wim Wenders film made in the 1980s. I mean, Wenders made the film having been in Hollywood and coming back to Germany and being obsessed with the idea that, that Germany needed healing and reunification. But it is strange that behind me the Brandenburg Gate, in front of me the long boulevard down to the Victory Column, and what I'm thinking of is Bruno Gantz and Peter Falk and Nick Cave playing in a hotel that no longer exists. Die Sonne, das Brot und der Wein. Der Hüpfschritt, das Osterfest, die Adern der Blätter, das wehende Gras, die Farben der Steine, die Kiese auf dem Grunde des Bachbetts, das weiße Tischtuch im Freien, 
Der Traum vom Haus im Haus. So I'm now on the right side of the Brandenburg Gate looking up at the statue now facing the four horses and the chariot. Famously taken away by Napoleon, then brought back now a central icon of Berlin. Um, again, the boulevard continues all the way down behind me now towards the, uh, the TV tower, the red and white TV tower, which again you will have seen in numerous movies. Over to the right-hand side, the Hotel Adlon, where Michael Jackson famously dangled one of his babies out of the window. The uh, Academie der Kunst. And the Brandenburg Gate, which is, well, you will have seen it in films and movies. You know what it looks like in them? That's what it looks like in real life. So I'm now standing outside the Reichstag, this kind of monumental building with that incredible uh, Norman Foster dome in the middle of it. And the most brilliant thing about it is this. To the right of me is the Tiergarten, and obviously we're surrounded by history and you know the, the history not only of partition in berlin but also the, the history of nazism but what is fantastic about this building is flying in front of it and on top of it are two flags the german flag and the european flag and it just makes me feel all the sadder that the uk have decided to leave because if there is anything that tells you that things can get better, it is this building with its history flying the German and the European flag. And the, I don't know, it just does make you think about the unity of Europe after World War II and the reason why Europe and European unity is so important and the foolhardiness of thinking that we should go it alone. I'll get off my soapbox now. I'm now standing on the eastern side of a long remaining section of the Berlin Wall by the very famous mural, My God Help Me to Survive This Deadly Love, which is a graffiti mural painted by Dmitry Vrubel in uh, 1990, which has become one of the best known pieces of uh, graffiti art on uh, the Berlin Wall, which depicts um, Leonard Brezhnev and Eric Honecker in a socialist fraternal kiss reproducing a photograph taken in uh, 1979 during the 30th anniversary celebration of the foundation of the German Democratic Republic. The strange thing for me is that usually if I'm in a town where a film festival is on I see very little of the town or the city but because the Berlin Film Festival is on at the moment, the Berlin Ali, but I'm not officially here for that. I've just dipped in and out of a couple of movies. So it has been great to spend time sightseeing. I know that everybody that comes to Berlin will go and look at the fragments of the wall, the remains of the wall, and this will be kind of very common knowledge. I've never seen it before. Um, and what's striking about it, and I think everyone who's seen it will know this, is on the one hand, it's smaller than you think. And on the other hand, the length of it is quite astonishing. So it's kind of, it's not very high, it's a fairly low wall, although the gap between the, 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 the first wall and then the sub wall, the kind of no man's land gap is, is you know, is, is pretty substantial. But the wall itself is, you know, you can see straight over it. There is something really, really bizarre about that idea of dividing a city with a wall in which you can quite literally see over the top of it 
to an area that you're not allowed to go to. So here I am now in the Alexanderplatz. I've just managed to find a little quiet bit of it, which is extraordinary because it's absolutely thrumming. So Alexanderplatz, which is this sort of you know great big open square, very near the the, the television tower, sort of looms up over everything. Uh, straight in front of us, pretty much, just slightly round to the corner is uh, Karl Marx Avenue, Karl Marx Boulevard. You know, in, in from the east, and. Um, of course, for me, the thing this looks like is I expect to see Jason Bourne being chased through a demonstration by, um, you know, by Paul Greengrass and his incredible roving cameras. Again, um, looks very different in real life. Well, it's in the daytime and it's kind of nice and calm, but, but it is absolutely recognisable as the location of one of those kind of famous nail-biting Jason Bourne sequences. It's, it is astonishing how many movie locations... Um, are here in Berlin. People always talk about walking around New York or walking around London and saying, well, you know, it's just like walking through a movie set. But there are very few places around here that don't seem to have been, uh, don't seem to have served as a backdrop for a movie at some point. As I said, this, this is, this is it's Alexanderplatz, but it's also Jason Bourne de Platz or something. Black coat, possibly leather, dark T-shirt dark pants. Are the cops out there want to corral all the guests together out on the sidewalk and check them out one by one. That'll really work. What the hell is he doing here? Well, maybe he just wants to stay the night. I'm walking back down um, Karl Marx Avenue, Karl Marx Strasse now. Um, and if you, again, if you ever get the chance to come to Berlin, come to the Kino International Cinema. Just regardless of what you see because it's the most remarkable looking building it's uh it's it kind of looks like this the same sort of architectural design as something from thunderbirds like an elevated rectangular block uh with a slightly curved uh, underbelly raised up uh from the ground on a sort of concrete pedestal really beautiful from the outside and actually pretty beautiful from the inside as well i've just dropped a my family are just dipping in there to see a film at the Berlin Alley. I'm just walking back to Alexanderplatz now because um, I spent enough time in cinemas. I haven't been to Berlin before. Actually, I say I haven't been to Berlin before. The honest truth of it is I have. I came to Berlin once for a couple of hours. Uh, Radio 5 were doing a live broadcast. I think it was a sporting event, something to do with football. No idea what it was. And I literally trained it out in the morning and arrived two hours before the broadcast and I said okay how long have I got before we're on they said well you got two hours you got to be back in an hour you got 90 minutes basically and I said where can I go from here they said well if you leg it you could leg it to the Brandenburg gate and back so I did I legged it to the Brandenburg gate looked up went there's the Brandenburg gate and legged it back again and then did the broadcast and then immediately back into a back onto a bus and then a train and then back home so I have been to Berlin before but I you know I might as well not have been it's like the time I went to Australia for the culture show to interview Baz Luhrmann. And people always say to me, have I been to Australia? I say, no, it's not true. I mean, I have technically been to Australia. I flew for 25 hours and I arrived there. I was in Australia for eight hours in total. Got off the plane, went to, I think it was Fox, interviewed Baz Luhrmann for four hours, two separate locations. Came back, uh, grabbed some food, got into the airport, got to the airport, got on the plane, flew back 25 hours. And at some point I opened my eyes and kind of went, oh look, Sydney. 
and that was the end of that. So I have technically been to Australia and I had technically been to Berlin before, but, but I hadn't. Uh, I'd like to go back to Australia in Berlin now. So um, I've made it to Checkpoint Charlie, which of course is in a you know a whole bunch of movies. But I think most recently Bridge of Spies. So this is the infamous uh, checkpoint, uh, bang in the middle of, of Berlin. Um, it's completely surrounded by tourists. I've just stood off to one side um, because there is literally uh, how many 25, 30 people there. Everybody waiting in turn to have their photographs taken. It's very small little uh, checkpoint. There's a there's a great big poster in front of it of. Uh, of a Soviet soldier, then there's the hut itself, which you know would just hold about two people, and then the uh, the kind of the, the the sandbags, the concrete bags in front of that, and everyone's just sort of waiting for their turn to stand in the you know in, in the little sort of bunker of bags and then have their photograph taken. And um, it, it, the, here's the weird thing about it, because obviously this has such an important cultural significance. I think the first time I heard about Checkpoint Charlie was probably in uh, Oliver's Army. You know, there was. A- Checkpoint Charlie. Yes, yeah, sorry, that's my bad Elvis Costello impression. But of course, what's remarkable about it now is that as I'm looking at it, I'm seeing right in the middle of the road, Checkpoint Charlie, with loads of tourists getting their photographs taken. To the left, um, the Museum of the Wall, um, specifically selling uh, Checkpoint Charlie memorabilia. And to the right, with a huge signpost that is way bigger than the Checkpoint Charlie signpost, McDonald's. A massive McDonald's overshadowing this uh, this, this historic and uh, cinematic landmark. So it's good to know that no matter where and when you are in the world. I remember going to Red Square back in the 1980s when I was doing a location report on a on a horror movie called Dark Waters, which was um, a really. I mean, I've written a chapter about this in a book. I was there for two weeks. It was uh, end of the 80s. We went to Moscow and then from Moscow to Odessa and then on to Feodosia and, and uh, Kiev and uh, it was a really kind of massively disorganised two weeks. The film was directed by an Italian, financed by a Ukrainian, um, uh, sort of based in Russia with an international cast, many of whom were speaking English phonetically. And for the whole of the two weeks that we were there, uh, we never saw a single foot of film be shot because... Uh, the film stock had been sold on the black market for a dollar profit, which meant uh, that there was no film. We couldn't see anything be filmed because there was no film uh, on which to shoot. Anyway, as part of that, when we first arrived in Moscow in the 1980s, uh, we went to Red Square and there was a great big sod-off McDonald's. Well, here's another one hard by Checkpoint Charlie. Wherever you go, you can get a Big Mac and Cheese. Just out of another screening, I went to see uh, Voice in the Wind, which is a Japanese film, which I knew nothing about at all, again, as before, with uh, Goddess of the Fireflies. And it was just, it was terrific. It's a really beautiful movie about um, a young girl who's lost her family in the earthquake, the tsunami disaster. And uh, she's living with her aunt, and her aunt is uh, taken ill, and she attempts to get back home to her, you know, to her family home, which has been ravaged by disaster, and it's basically a sort of series of episodes. She meets people on her journey trying to get back home, and it's very moving. And during the course of this journey, she she comes into contact with a young boy who's 
bereaved about the loss of his father and tells her that he's heard about this phone book called the, uh, the wind phone in which you can apparently speak to the dead and so she asks whether she can come with him to uh, to go and try and find the wind phone it's, it's a really remarkable film i don't know whether it'll get picked up for release in the uk um Yes, I was really moved by it, and uh, and they had everyone there. The director was there, and the cast and, and crew, and it was, it was again, it was one of those things. This is a lovely thing about a film festival, particularly this year, come along, get a public ticket, um, see something that you hadn't expected, you didn't know anything about at all, and then you know afterwards you get a pretty good director and cast Q and A, and the audience loved it. It was two hours twenty minutes long, but it f- that that time just flew by. It's really touched me. I, I was really unex- I was really not expecting it to be so profound, and I found it very moving. Hiroshima から Niwate no Ootsuchi Chou へ. 死ぬなよ。この辺見だちゃんと。傷ついた心を抱えた少女の旅が始まる。今どこにいるの？風の電話。So it's about eight o'clock on my last night in Berlin. I'm standing outside the Friedrichstadt Palast. Just an extraordinary cinema. So many extraordinary theatres and cinemas here. I'm waiting for my family to come out. They've been watching a film. I've been sitting in a nearby,、uh, what would say, pub bar, a nearby bar, where I've been sitting writing my review of、uh, Celine Sciamma's Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And、uh, it's a strange thing. We're going home tomorrow, and. As I said, I haven't really been here working the festival. I've only been to a couple of films, but I do feel like I've spent the last four days absolutely immersed in cinema. Whether it's walking past breathtaking theatres and screens, or stumbling upon locations of movies that I know and love, or just thinking about, you know, the way in which my Picture of Berlin has been completely constructed from going to the movies. It has been a very, very cinematic experience. I'll be sad to leave it, and I'll be glad to come back at some point in the near future. And this is Mark Kermode, last survivor of the Nostromo, signing off. Well, there we are. That's my audio diary of my trip to Berlin. As I said, I didn't go out there for the film festival. The film festival was on, and I did enjoy it. But it was more just the wonder of wandering around Berlin. If you've enjoyed this podcast, remember to subscribe. You can also go to our Patreon page, where we have a load of extra content, including some exclusive video stuff. Tell your friends. Remember to subscribe. Keep watching the skies. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code Acast for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.